Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 81 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with John Meesey, researcher at the Center for Invasion Biology at Stellenbosch University, South Africa. His book, How to Publish in Biological Sciences, A Guide for the Uninitiated, is out with CRC Press. And the book is being written in Bookdown, and so is a live project anyone may contribute to or use as the basis for their own work. Find out how on the blog post for this episode of Scholarly Communication. In semiotics, the study of meaning, there is a term for our active human part in the transference of meanings from forms in the world into experience of the world. And the term also covers the transference of the forms we put out into the world in order to open our experience to others. And the term covers such forms as these, and the experience had by others encountering and engaging in those new forms we've put out into the world. This term I'm talking about here is participation. And it's an apt name because meaning-making is necessarily an act of taking part, of reaching out, of passing around, of joining up, and of doing it all again and again. Essentially, participation describes the three-way process of how meaning is made at all. Figure a thing out for yourself, the term here is representation. Open that having figured out to access by others, or communication. And the figuring out by others of the thing you've made accessible, or interpretation. Participation, as the term implies, is all social, all the time. Really, we humans don't make meaning unless we're making it for us. And though it's entirely possible that the meaning you might make of a thing, you might just do so for yourself, the term here again is representation, but even this seemingly solitary act entails so, so much that is socially participative not least of which being the fact that you make the meaning of the thing in forms and for reasons which you've learned by encountering other people's meaning throughout your life and in many institutions, in the family, in school, at work, in commercial establishments, in government agencies, everywhere and anywhere. Now, it is surely not immediately apparent why I should be going on here about social semiotics when my guest today, John Meesey, is a professor of biological sciences, and when our topic of discussion is his new book, How to Publish in Biological Sciences. Therefore, let me make my point apparent. How to Publish in Biological Sciences is not just another guide on how to write your next research article. How to Publish in Biological Sciences is not about paragraphing and word choice and which section of your manuscript has which function in relation to your research purposes. And I don't mean by this that these are not very worthy topics to be written about. They are very worthy topics, and John has written about them. He and I talked right here on Scholarly Communication about such topics in the interview on his book, How to Write a PhD in Biological Sciences. But even there, the discussion veered from just topics of writing, which itself is covered by that term participation, 
because the book How to Write a PhD in Biological Sciences also extends to such broader elements of participation in a PhD program and thus also in science as the tenets of the scientific project, the role of an advisor and mentorship generally, and the importance of physical and mental health. How to Publish in Biological Sciences, today's book, broadens that broad scope. And the book takes on participation in biological sciences on the grand scale of research now. This is a welcome, welcome contribution to how scientists can improve their research practice by rising in awareness, by seeing the big picture, by recognizing the interest at play in all scientific research, by noticing in the steps and substeps of any and every part of that practice, be it submitting a manuscript, be it bringing to attention fraudulent data, be it serving as an editor or acknowledging the service performed, either excellently or poorly, by an individual editor, in any of these cases, to recognize the human interest involved is to recognize what is really and actually going on. And that is recognition which feeds directly into a person being enabled to participate in the publishing of their own research as they need to do, as they want to do. This achievement of John's book, How to Publish in Biological Sciences, this achievement namely of enabling biologists, and especially early career biologists, to advance their research goals and academic careers, this achievement on its own would be enough to call the book a success. But the book achieves more than that, because John targets his advice and guidance to early career researchers of today and to early career researchers of the coming days and years. And so these people's rise in awareness is likewise a rise in the momentum for change in current publishing models in science. It's the early career researchers now, and just after now, who are in prime position to assess how science is being published, and from that to decide how their science should be published. How to Publish in Biological Sciences provides the available facts anyone will need to make such an assessment. How to Publish in Biological Sciences provides the well-reasoned arguments anyone will heed before deciding for themselves how to publish. Early career researchers, and also all researchers at all stages of their careers, look up from the pages of this book, understanding better how they can participate in the creation of scientific knowledge. And rather importantly, they understand just what precisely the different options open to them for participation will mean mean for themselves, mean for their next paper, mean for their sub-discipline, and for the entire field of biological sciences. Researchers learn from the book just what it means to the scientific project when they participate in that paradigmatic process of knowledge-making and meaning-making in the sciences of every discipline and every field. That process of publishing. So, let's begin today's episode, John Meesey, and How to Publish in Biological Sciences. Hi, John. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hello, Daniel. Thanks very much for that introduction. The term that came up a few times in that introduction and that comes up in your book, and I would say really is one of the things that the book is revolving around. It's a guide. It's meant there to be helping people to, particularly, as I mentioned, early career researchers, to be doing their research as they'd like to, um, but it's also providing a larger framework so that they understand where it is that they're doing what they like or not like. <laughs> and that term is the scientific project. 
I noticed the four terms that you kind of associated with that again and again, rigor, independence, transparency, and rep- replicability. Um, is, is, that, is that really at the heart of this project? Would you, would you say that those four terms are representing something that you're talking about there? Yeah, I mean, basically, we're talking about science. Um, and why do we do science? Why uh, do, does our society base decisions that it makes for, for many members in its society on evidence produced by scientists? We, we often come across in the media, I hear every day, scientists say this, scientists say that. Science is a methodology. It, it has those um, three tenets as the center of uh, its methodology. And we need to always be reminded and to remember them uh, as, as the heart of the scientific project, of, of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and we forget those things that are peril, I think. And I think what you make so, so accessible for people, especially, I mean, this is a book for scientists, practicing biologists, people who are really beginning that career and research that they want to excel in. What you make accessible to them, I think, is that these these points of rigor and independence and transparency and replicability are actually hard for us humans. It's 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 not that you become a scientist and then you suddenly become rigorous and so on. I mean it's as you're just saying, it's it's a method. So it's something that you need to learn. And and how this plays out in all the areas of research in the lab, which isn't necessarily the focus of this, but certainly on the publishing end, becomes a real topic that resurfaces again and again in the peer review process, in editorial decisions, in the choice that an author makes of a journal or the other journal. Um, so I, I find that that is one of the major successes of the book to to show that you know you scientists, you're humans. Yes, and and as humans, we get it wrong, <laughs> um, and I I think that's uh, that. Perhaps is something that that um, the humility of getting it wrong is something that that doesn't come across from scientists um, of, as often as it should, uh, and you don't often come across um, scientists that say, "Well, we did that. We we thought we understood the results, but we were wrong." Um, and of course, that that ability to actually say no we got that wrong, is also at the heart of the scientific project. When something doesn't replicate, um, then you have to say, well, what assumptions were we making uh, in that experiment? And perhaps those assumptions were not valid. um, And so the study was not uh, as we had hoped it would be. Yeah, that that, that actually brings uh, to mind for me one of the parts... um, in your your book here, where you talk about editors, editors resurface throughout the book because uh, you make also very vividly apparent that they are the linchpin, the pivot of so much of the what goes on in in editing. And uh, you make the point in in your uh, chapter eighteen about editors needing to read, <laughs> which <laughs> which um, I suppose first off, some people might have thought, well, that point didn't need to be made, but you actually show yes, it, it very much does, um, but. Surprisingly, it does. Um, but what you were just saying there about assumptions is, I find, um, something in that chapter that really caught my attention. You, t- you talk about their authors needing to 
sit down and really, uh, I found this was would be a fantastic exercise for, for a research group to sit down and as they read through their manuscript, jot next to it in the margins or in a separate file, each assumption that was being made as they went along. And then you make the fantastic remark, because this is the editor's perspective, I think, for a biologist doing that, you know, if a physicist or even just a non-scientist picked up that manuscript, the amount of assumptions that they would note would be, you know, multiple times the amount. And 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 there you get, I find, really at the heart of this communication of science. This this was a really important point for me. Yeah, I mean, es- essentially, um, we, as you may know, we have in universities the world over we have these journal clubs um, and we sit down and we critically appraise uh, a manuscript that somebody puts forward and and presents Um, I've never been I've been to many of these journal clubs but I've never been to one where you couldn't find fault um, with a a publication something that's already gone through peer review uh, and has been produced often in very high-ranking journals Um, there's always something there's there's always some assumptions uh that are there and there's always some uh ground that perhaps isn't as firm to the reader as it might be uh to the people who who put it together and uh and wrote it so yeah i i think um i think that there will always and there will always be because in, in essence we're communicating what we did um we can't uh, unless, unless it was a computer simulation, we can't actually give over what we did, um, and so always our, our the, the produced manuscript that's published will be our interpretation, or, the, or through the eyes of the people who did the work, um, what they had envisaged, and as close as they can make it, in order for somebody else to pick it up and say, okay, if I want to do this again, then I could do it again, but looking at the, the, that publication and together with it, the data and the results, um, that they, they feel confident that that is a foundation on which something can be built. And again, you know, that's the basis of the scientific pro- project, that, that we can have something that's reproducible, uh, we can have a methodology that we can follow, we can do it again, and that, that when we feel confident about that as a baseline, we can build upon that um, in order to learn more and more. And that advancement that you're referring to, it's its really helpful. And this is, this is, again, I'm repeating myself, but this is really what I find that the book has to offer an early career researcher, researcher probably at any stage. Um, what, what's really helpful in the book is that you, you again, make, make clear that you know, you're dealing with an assumption. You're dealing with an interpretation of somebody's data or an interpretation of how they've interpreted the data. So we're back at this issue of we have to try to be rigorous. We have to try to be independent. And then you put a name on some of this. You talk about such issues as soft skills. You talk about the soft power involved in the hard sciences. I, I, I get the impression that there's, there's more, this, this is being acknowledged more widely now. And I think awareness is is raising, and you've contributed to that awareness. And I think that that is probably exactly. But please, please tell me if you disagree. But that is probably exactly what you see as the the momentum which can perhaps improve the scientific project at the moment. 
Yeah, I, I think we need to uh, acknowledge that um, what what we're doing individually as, as scientists works much better in a in a collaborative framework and not a competitive one. Um, and I think this this is where I start seeing uh, cracks in the way that science is conducted. In that uh, many, if not most, of our governments in the way that they fund science. Um, and as with many other funding, they want it to be a competitive process. And so they're pitching um, one project against another one. They're telling, they might be telling me that my uh, project isn't as good as the project of uh, somebody, some colleague sitting in an office next door. Um, and so they've decided to give that colleague the funding instead of me, or they've decided to, to um, send that colleague to a um, a workshop instead of me. Um, that's not the way science works. Science works as a collaborative process. Um, and I think that some, in some instances, there are governments who, and funding agencies who are recognizing this, more funding agencies than governments, I'm afraid, but uh, it's certainly a start. Um, and they're starting to realize that outputs of science outputs, especially in the biological sciences, are more about what other people are able to do with that data, what other people are able to do with those results that you produce. So less less about the publication and more about the, the, the products now have expanded from just the written word into a set of data and even um, uh, a set of uh, code in the analysis. So more progressive journals are insisting that instead of just producing the words, we're also producing the, the data analysis as a, as a script and the um, results so that people can rerun those results. And they're worth so much more than um, just having the written word with some graphs that are really only interpreting the, the data that you've produced. And there are many instances in there, some examples in the book, of why this is important, uh, when things start going wrong, why it's very important to have all of that information available, um, because it really um, helps people make uh, much better decisions and, and much more rapidly. You sketch out the scientific project, as you can imagine it developing in a very positive sense. And I think this is probably the most suiting time to, to bring that up. I'm, I'm in chapter one, and I, I've got two figures in front of me, figure 1.1 and 1.2. <laughs> this is unhelpful, of course, to our listeners. But um, just to sum it up uh, as briefly as possible, what kind of comes out uh, in figure 1.1, 1. 1, uh, what certainly comes out is that this is the current uh, situation. But what kind of comes out is you see the editors in the middle, and then you see three major factors surrounding them. And they're sort of interaction with each other, the citations, the peer review, and the impact factor. And this seems to kind of summarize what you've just talked about. Instead of being more about uh, the sets of data or the code, it's it's less about that, and it's more about the public publishing, the actual publication itself, where you've got a text that's interpreting something. Figure 1.2 gives us the editors in their exact same position, but we have a full circle. Everything's continuous, and we've got on the outside three major points. We've got the open data, the open access, and the open communication. And there we have less about publishing 
and more about, as you said, the sets of data or, or the code. Um, I've given now <laughs> the quickest of possible introductions to that, but can you perhaps flesh that out and give us a picture of how this is really the way that the scientific project would most beneficially develop? So yeah, I, in, in this opening chapter to the book, I want to try to, to lay down um, the idea of, of where I'm coming from um, as a researcher. And maybe, you know, I hope one day in the future, this will be a historical document. Um, but the situation as it is now, and the situation of where we need to get to um, in terms of publishing, uh, in terms of scientific publishing. So the, the figure that you described, the first figure, 1.1, um, it's really having um, an editor, editorial board and associate editors who are all being heavily influenced by metrics. Those metrics being um, impact factor, uh, so that's the ranking of the journal, or the perceived ranking of the journal, how important it is. Um, and many of your listeners may be aware of um, publications such as Science and Nature or Cell, all, all three at the, at the very highest level of impact factors. Um, and the need for um, researchers, especially early career researchers, uh, to have those high impact factor publications in order to advance their careers. So you have an, um, editors and associate editors who want their journals to be ranked very highly, and you have authors um, who want to publish in those very high ranking journals. And those are the metrics that are framing the current situation in, in uh, publishing um, to, a, to a level where it has become destructive. Uh, and there are many examples in the book about why that is going wrong, um, how it's going wrong um, on, on many different levels uh, and how and the detriment uh, that it has to the scientific project. And then in, in figure 1.2, so, so the, this is uh, my perception of, of, of where we should be going. Um, this is a, a utopia where scientists are communicating um, with their peers um, and through scholarly um, publications, so pretty much in the same way, but openly, without the need for the, the metrics. So metrics are something that, that publishers have invented um, originally as, as, a, as a need to, for, for libraries to decide how to, to reduce the, the quota of journals they're taking, but these have been taken on board by... Um, people at universities who want to, to try to score how academics are doing so that they want to try to reduce everything to a number um, and that has produced the rankings the rankings come from citations um, so in, in my version of the future of publishing what I see as very important is, is doing away with all of that we, we don't need that we can do science, we can publish science without it. Uh, our editor and our editorial board and associate editors can concentrate purely on making sure that the manuscripts that they handle meet those four attributes that we talked about earlier for the scientific project. So to make sure that they are rigorous, repeatable, um, and that they, they reach the, the quality of peer review or through peer review uh, in order to be 
accepted and published. And, and all of that requires transparency and hence the word open, open data, open access and open communication. You talk also a lot about incentives throughout the book, which is quite natural. I mean, we have to figure out why people are doing what they're doing and why they might also do it differently. So this this is really, I would say, one of the cruxes of the issue. And it and it came out to, to me quite clearly that we've got at least three different cultures on our hand. And I really appreciate that you use the word culture there because, again, I, I'm, I'm overemphasizing the point, but I, I think with science uh, – and scientists, it's probably worth overemphasizing the the soft side of things, the fact that we're dealing with the way people do things and not just uh, the reasoned out steps or procedures as to why somebody would do something. I mean, there's 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 a lot of things that are affecting people. But to get back to my point, I mean, I, I noticed three different cultures there, the culture of reason or science, the culture of commerce and the culture of management. And how these are incentivizing people to do certain things. I mean, the example you give there of um, having a nice number to put next to a name and an administrative chart and to figure out, do we want to hire this person or not, right? I mean, these this is a wonderful thing for management. They love that. Um, but that doesn't mesh at all, as you've very cogently argued and, and, and told us now, with the culture of science, does it? No. Um but, but it's, it's basically a simplification. Um, and who, who wants to be a number? Who wants to be a score? Uh, as soon as we're with numbers, uh, instead of my colleague being a, a, a colleague, they're a competitor. They're somebody who I want to have a number that's bigger than their number in order to make sure that I'm the next on the hiring list or I'm the next on the promotion list instead of them. Um, it, it, it replaces so many so many things that are actually so important in academia and in science itself, where we should really, we should really be concentrating much more on uh, building people. So this, this is where the example of soft power comes in. Um, so much of the, the publishing process is about soft power because we have the majority of editors and associate editors are unpaid. They're, they're not receiving anything for the work that they do. Um, in fact, they're, they're probably just getting a lot of grief and additional work. Uh, the peer review process itself is an example of soft power. The, the idea of peer review is that we receive a manuscript, we see some problems potentially, and we alert our colleagues who have submitted the manuscript to those problems so that they can rectify it, so that they can produce something that's much better. Um, when it's finally published. So all of these things are um, examples of soft power. They're examples of people working together and producing something that's bigger and better together than, than any one of them would, would have done alone. But they're all eroded by um, this sort of publication model where, where people want to see metrics and Somebody wants to publish in a journal that's that's higher on the metric list, uh, and uh, the journal owners or the publishers want to get paid um, an exorbitant amount of money in order to publish um, something with their their publisher's logo on it. So, so we see the scientific project basically being eroded um, by the current publication model. 
And what you say there of a person not wanting to be a number, I mean, of course, on an individual level, if, if you know, we have self-esteem, <laughs> we're unhappy with a number identifying us in any way. But if, if we take the step up, which you very often do in the book of talking about uh, cultures or communities, um, then we realize that in the management system, the dominance of a management system in science is going to naturally tend in that direction because management is interested in efficiency, right? You want the system running smoothly without any hitches. And, and that efficiency is naturally going to go against the culture, which if I'm allowed to maybe simplify a bit here in science, which is I would call efficacy. So making change, right? Allowing there to be advancement in some way. And if you throw into the mix, which is necessarily there because of the publishing industry, the idea of commerce, which I mean, the the, the reason d'être of a of a firm is is to make profit, then I mean you've you've got a massive conflict of incentives going on and it's said to be in the name of science, but it's it's not playing out that way. I mean, this is why you're asking for the change that you're asking. And so, yes, we, we, we're also looking at not only the commercialization of publishing, but um, the reason that, that those administrators want to see those metrics is because they want to be able to say, well, our university, our business is better than the next one. And so we want students to be um, attracted to our university because our scientists or our researchers have better metrics. Um, and that also ultimately doesn't work. Uh, perhaps that's a, a, um, an issue for another book by, by somebody else. But um, yes, I, th I think the, the problem is, is bigger than just publishing, although um, publishing is obviously at the center of what, uh, subject of what this book is about. And publishing or let's say more generally research communication um, to to maybe pull in also such forms and formats as uh, conference presentations and posters. I mean, all of this is getting science out there and letting people, other people know what, what, what your data is. Um, it's interesting what you say in that respect. You, you said earlier that uh, in publishing or in communicating in the new model, the circular model, the open model, the figure 1.2 that we were talking about, this sort of communication would be pretty much the same way. And that, that, that is something that I had been sort of turning over in my mind as I read the book. I was thinking, how exactly is it going to be? Because just to be a bit more specific as, as to what I mean, just take the form of writing. Um, people who work in English for um, scientific purposes, they, they have different ideas of what the rhetoric is about. For instance, very many people will think that you're writing to writing to an audience, right? So you've got to figure out what is the common ground and where you can take them. You might be writing for an audience. In other words, the purpose that you have is what they do with your information, okay? Another idea, and this is a new idea, and this seems to mesh, and I'd be very happy to hear what you have to say about that, mesh with your open vision of the scientific project, is writing among other people, so in other words, this idea of a research community, which is so often talked about in sciences or a sub-community, right? The, the, the community that is so tight that even in blind peer review or double blind peer review, people can make very accurate guesses as to who's involved here. <laughs> um, this, this seems to be the way forward. So in other words, it's 
a writing among as in the sense of we're really just telling everybody everything so that who cares, right? That's the community so that we can, you know, we can get something some, somewhere with this. Perhaps if I contrast it with, with what we don't want, um, what we don't want is we don't want people writing manuscripts for editors or for just so that it goes in a particular journal at a particular impact factor um, that will then get them the job or the promotion. So all of this science is to be done for the, for the scientific community or for the betterment of knowledge so that we know uh, how to avoid um, making particular mistakes so that we can inform government about uh, particular directions that they should or shouldn't be going in. Um, the, the scientific project is extremely important, but we can't, we can't throw that away um, just so that we get uh, some publication in a glossy magazine, even though that may be what gets us a job or gets us a promotion. That's the danger. Instead, we need to go back to a period when what we were trying to do was make a record of what had been done and have that record open as a, as a piece of open communication, as, as open as possible. And I, I pointed in already in our discussion about how the sort of openness of the data and the, the analysis script can, you know, the, all of this, now we have the potential for opening this much more, more than just the words that are written on the page, but having that um, open and presented and available for other people to, to use and work on um, over the top and build as a foundation to actually build our understanding higher and higher. If, if we fail to have all of that, if we fail to be producing science that other people can be used, can use as a foundation, then we're really failing at our scientific project. And that, that's my concern um, with the way the publishing is going, is that instead of building a solid foundation in science, a lot of what's happening is uh, people just writing something in order to have it published in something that's very impactful. I wonder if we could pull some of these ideas down into how this writing might look, this communication to stay as broad as we might uh, in this in this area, how it might look. Because you, you in, I don't know, 10 years time, 15 years time, um, because you offer such such uh, possibilities and, and uh, part of the guidance that you offer, I feel, is is also how is it that the, particularly the early career researchers, as, as I said in the introduction, they seem to be positioned well. They seem to be in prime position to really start making choices that could bring the scientific project around. Um, what might that look like for how they are doing their work in that 10 or 15 years time? Maybe if I just pick up a random example and and uh, feel free to expand in any way that you like. You talk about journal overlays, for example, which which caught my attention. Um, overlay because, journals. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, o- overlay journals. Um, and, and, you, and the reason it caught my attention is because of what it does for the editor's position. Because some of what's going wrong clearly at the moment in publishing is is what editors are being asked to do, how editors are performing their function as editor, and what they have to perhaps also neglect sometimes. Um, if I might just quote two or three sentences that you, that you have here on the Overlay Journal, 
The Overlay Journal offers a brief editorial summary of what you'll find if you click through to a paper. This is a fantastic idea in that it pitches editors back into being responsible content curators. As an editor, I'd want to be motivated to publish a paper that I'd liked in order to write an editorial summary, end quote. You follow that up also with an idea of editors prospecting. In other words, finding on preprint servers the kind of articles that they would like to include in their overlay journal, that they would like to summarize, that they would like to see published, it, it sounded to me like an interesting new way forward on how some publishing could be done. So overlay journals is, is not a, a very new idea, um, but it's an idea whose time has come. Um, I think that's probably the best way of putting it. Uh, so... At, at its essence, um, the, the overlay side of this is that this is a, like a skin. Um, the journal is simply a list of um, manuscripts that it, it has accepted onto through normal peer review. And then it points to where that um, manuscript is, is housed. And... In existing overlay journals, most of these are housed in preprint servers. Um, and as you, your listeners may already be aware, uh, when you've put your manuscript on a preprint server, you can then put it uh, new versions again and again and again, so that as you refine uh, the manuscript, the accepted something that's accepted or has gone through peer review can actually appear um, on top of the original one that was uh, posted. So the overlay journal, the skin, is simply pointing at these um, these manuscripts, wherever they are, and saying, okay, these are things that we have reviewed and we uh, have decided would are appropriate for our journals, but they actually sit on preprint servers elsewhere. And we're all familiar, I think, with some of those bigger um, preprint servers like Archive or BioArchive for Biological Sciences. Um, but there's nothing to stop our own institutions becoming our preprint servers. So in my um, ideal vision, uh, we would, we would um, re-empower our libraries to be our own preprint servers and these overlay journals would sit uh, at another level curated by editors and associate editors uh, and overseen by an editorial board, but pointing back to the institutions where the, this work was done. I think that's a, a welcome position. It seems like also, and this is what I meant earlier with the uh, the culture in, in science, it seems like such an effective uh solution to things. I mean, science wants obviously reason to work out problems. And I mean, for the library to be in the position that you've just described, it's almost like once you hear that, you start to think, well, why aren't they? I mean, what else would a library or uh, an educational or educational slash research institution be doing, right? Well, it's something that, that libraries are extremely good at. Um, let's remember that, that libraries were some of the first um, groups to ever put together digital uh, content. Um, they were the ones who uh, had uh, internet um, or very early adopters of, of an internet and they're the ones that curate um, 
for the degrees so PhDs and masters, um, they're the ones that hold the th these theses and disseminate it um, to anybody who wants to access it. So actually, libraries already have these foundations. It's part of what they do already. Uh, and I think may, for many academics, libraries have, have become buildings and staff that they no longer interact with because they're, they're looking for their content online. But actually, this is a way of um, having uh, the academics of an institution come home to their library because the library then becomes the curator for that institution's work. And so it, it ties much, much more closely together with their, uh, with their objectives. And it, it, it ties then also with the support that that institution is not only employing the academic, but it's supporting them by curating their work in the library. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, the library is part of the larger service of academic support at any research or educational institute. And, and that's why, I mean, you would hardly have to preach to me <laughs> to, to give libraries that position because, I mean, I'm, in, I'm as, as very many of my colleagues who are probably listening, in another arm of academic support, and that is English for most generally specific purposes, scientific purposes in my case. So, I mean, this is another thing that I would like to see clearly research and educational institutes doing, offering researchers, scientists, the support of digital housing of, of, of their publications and digital support and how um, to find the research that they need, just as I find that a scientist should have at his or her elbow a service for how is it that I communicate now these findings that I've found. I mean, you can only off ask so much of a single person, a scientist, when they've become expert in their field of all the multitasks that they should be expert also at, which um, are these soft skills that you refer to. So one of the things that, that uh, one of the chapters in the book um, talks about all the different kinds of uh, open access. Um, Libre, green, bronze, gratis, delayed, gold, hybrid, black, gray, platinum, or diamond. Okay, so there's, there's lots of different kinds of open access, but, but one of them is green open access. And green open access is where you deposit... Um, the accepted version of your manuscript in your library repository. So in the repository at your institution. Well, why, why is this, you know, why is it necessary that we go on from this? So the only reason that, that you would go on from this is because the journal has been captured by a publishing house and they want to make their money by moving that manuscript into something that they that they are essentially selling to the outside world, the, all the work that's been done on the research that's been funded by usually the public through taxpayers' wallet um, may have been may have had uh, some independent uh, uh, funding body also contributing to that, and certainly through the the university paying the salary, but that. That work at the point where it, it is a manuscript and with green open access sitting on the, the um, server of the library of the institution, the institutional repository, that's really our end point. We don't really need that next step of having a publisher come in and say, okay, we're, we're going to um, pay some people to typeset this into something that, that is going to look pretty and that we can attribute numbers to. 
that next step is superfluous to the scientific project, doesn't help us at all. But what we find, and I think this sort of comes back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier with, with respect to editors and, and, and what they want, is that people who have benefited from that system, so it tends to be academics who have really benefited from um, publications in, in uh, journals with high impact or editors that have edited journals with high impact or, or aspire to do the same. So those people who already benefited from the game are the people who are really driving that forward. Um, so they have an invested interest um, and they want to carry on because they're currently winning. So they're getting a lot of payback from the current system as it is. Whereas the vast majority of scientists and certainly early career researchers are losing out because of those attitudes and, and that um, dominant uh, idea of what publishing is, pandering to the metrics. And one word that uh, shows up often in connection with, with editors and other people involved in the publishing process, I think the, this would also include, of course, management at, at firms, is the word gatekeeper. And that is clearly a very apt description of what's going on when a submission is made and whether or not it gets in, right? There's the gate. Um, but but just in light of what you've been saying, that we've got different people having different experiences on in different editorships, clearly not everyone is doing the gatekeeping quite in the same way. I've, I've had some interesting discussions on this program, and I'd like to hear how, 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 how you stand on these issues. Um, for instance, with Dan Bolnick, um, editor himself, he talks about how he sees his work as an editor as, as um, less gatekeeping and more responding to what the readers are going to want. So in other words, the readers or the community to which his the American Naturalist, his, his, his journal, is communicating to, what it is that is going to make sense to the work that they're doing. And I found that really interesting because it tied in so well with um, a study of nature. Now, this is, of course, one of those mega massive impact um, journals that we've been talking about, which doesn't have its own community. It just has all of science, really, in front of it. But um, a historical study that was done on it by another guest on the program, Melinda Baldwin, showed that so many of the pivotal moments in the history of that magazine over the past almost 150 years were really driven by the readers themselves. Now, of course, there is in place an administration and an, a board of editors, and they're making decisions and so on. But she very clearly showed in her historical research how there was a, a level of responding going on as well there. Um, hard to believe, of course, from today's perspective, when we think that it, 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 it seems to be the, the epitome of gatekeeping. But um, that is the perspective, at least, that she takes us up into the 1990s. Um, her, her study de-emphasizes really the 21st century. Um, so with all that in view, I suppose what I'm asking is, we've just mentioned this idea of editors and being in that gatekeeping position. Is there any way to nuance that picture of it? Would you see other major stakeholders involved or other major influencers involved in that area? Sure. I, I, I think um, my perspective uh, as having been an editor or in chief previously and, and I'm currently um, associate editor or um, I, I edit for various 
different journals. Um, so from, from my view, uh, I would say that an editor is there to, to assist authors and help them get work get published through um, the window of peer review or through the eyes of, of their peers. Um, they're there to facilitate. Um, Dan Bolnick, I think, is in a slightly different position in that he, as the point is made multiple times in the book, there's limited space in his journal. Um, his, his, his journal is, is run by a society, and so he's responsible to the society, and he then needs to take special care of what people want to see in his journal. Um, obviously, that's through his eyes. I think he, he does an excellent job, I would say. Uh, and he's, he's an extremely conscientious editor. Uh, but we have a huge number of journals now um, where, especially those um, which I use a term, um, no impact journals. So these are typically your gold open access journals um, where they're expecting authors to pay. There's, as long as they pay and as long as they pass peer review, um, in that they, they, the manuscript is rigorous, then it will be accepted and published in the journal. Um, the first journal to do this was PLOS One, um, and there are now innumerable titles that are huge numbers of, and publishing houses that are, that are exclusively based on this principle. Um, and so getting back to your, your question, well, what, what does an ed editor want to do? Well, it kind of depends who who's the, the puppet master of that editor. In the case that you discussed of American naturalists, well, there you have a society who are interested in the advancement of science in that particular area. So that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what you want. Um, and they have chosen an editor who they think is a visionary for their own members and for the, the community at large. And that's what we want. That's, that's the way that we see um, the, the scientific project being done properly. What worries me is more um, that uh, there are plenty of um, publishing puppet masters, <coughs> excuse me, uh, for editors who simply want the editors to accept as many manuscripts as possible because that's making them money. And then you see something different that's driving the system. You see editors who are really interested in peer review just as a hurdle to say, okay, yes, it has been peer reviewed. Um, and once that peer review hurdle is done, then the manuscript can appear online. The cash register says ka-ching, and the publisher makes another two to 4,000 US dollars. Um, this, this is a very worrying part of um, current publishing. Uh, I think everyone needs to be worried about it. I personally, I'm not worried about the, the extra volume or, or the, the inflation in um, the number of articles that have been published. And, and, and there is a chapter about this in the book. Um, it doesn't worry me because at, at some point there's a ceiling and there's a limit and that will naturally um, sort itself out. What worries me more is the motivation of when you're submitting your manuscript to 
um, a particular journal, what is the motivation then to, to accept your manuscript or what is the motivation of the editor to actually have that review process turning? Is it to increase the quality um, of your work for, a, for the wider audience or is it just as a, as a function of, of making money for a publishing house? I think in many cases the latter is true and that's what I'm really concerned about. You mentioned also here um, what it is that editors want and uh, what is the motivation behind publishing that next article. Um, you also mentioned uh, productivity, levels of pro productivity, the term feasi feasible productivity or infeasible productivity certainly comes up in the book. Perhaps perhaps we can get to that in a moment. But just to pursue this idea of the editors, you, you also explore the cover letter. And one of the important, uh, and this is where writing comes in, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction uh, to our interview today, uh, Let's say the nuts and bolts of writing don't figure in the center of this book. They, they figure much more in the center of the companion volume, as I would call it, um, how to write a PhD um, in biological sciences. But one area that does come out is in peer reviewing and in cover letter writing. Um, they even have their own chapters. Peer reviewing has multiple chapters in the book. Um, and what I found to be an extremely insightful point is the communication with the editors through your cover letter, that the cover letter is document and the whole communication process, research communication process is, is not to be neglected. It's, an, it's a short document, but it's an entirely important document. Do you, are you matching the scope that the editor has in mind when he or she is picking up your submission? And it's probably an exercise worth, and you, you suggest as much, worth going on through your entire uh, study of, you know, readjusting that list of, of, of journals with scope and publications as to who, who am I writing this? Who, who is going to want to read this, right? So that you write an honest two or three lines to this editor saying, this is why it fits in the journal and it makes sense to that editor. Yeah, so just, just to pick up on that, I, I think when you talk to editors about reasons why manuscripts are, are rejected, um, they will tell you that the most of the time a manuscript is rejected because it's not appropriate for their journal. Um, and that just comes out time and time again. Uh, there are now increasing numbers of publications where where editors are prepared to write editorials about the publishing process. And, and these are regularly cited in the book. And the editors are, are constantly frustrated that the authors or people who are submitting manuscripts are not really taking notice of what the journal is publishing. And so now we're coming back to, well, what is the duty of the, the author, in this case, the early career researcher, what must they do? What due diligence do they need to do before they submit a manuscript? Um, and as you've mentioned, what, what I suggest in the book is that they make a list of journals where they've gone through the scope of the journals and they have made notes about how their article matches that scope. Because when they submit to the, the first journal on their list, um, the one that they would most like to publish in for whatever reason, um, then they can match those points of why their article meets the scope of the journal, why 
it is in essence why it should be published by that journal and they can put that reasoning and and we're not looking at a lot we're looking at a paragraph um the logic of why that journal is a good journal for for what the work that they've done and this is super important because as i say most editors find that most rejections um come because the the scope is not a good fit the articles manuscripts that are being submitted are not a good fit for the journal so it's this is a a very very important thing and it, it, i think it's something that isn't um communicated well to early career researchers um and so it does become a, a really pivotal part of the book is that you can't throw your manuscript anywhere and then hope it will stick somewhere um you must you must have your own reasoned arguments uh that match the scope and i would suggest that because space is limited in 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 so many of these journals you should expect some level of disappointment may may not go into the the first journal that you submitted to this is the case that i have after um uh, a career of spanning 25 years or more of of writing articles for various journals and and having published a large number there are still many times when the first submission is rejected it doesn't go into that journal and then i have to look down and if i have a list that says of my students have, have compiled a list that said this is where we're going next makes that that next decision so much easier because we can look at the scope of the next journal and say okay well what did what did that journal say they need and and do we agree that our manuscript do we still agree that our manuscript fits for the scope of that journal this is a fundamental point of of uh of of publishing or going through the publication publication process but on the part of the author so there's a responsibility the author to do before they submit something yeah and the author here has um some something to perform for the as as a service to the research community to whom he or she is 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 trying to get out their research and, yeah, and, and that's what one of the one of the points sorry to interrupt but yeah one of the points later on is that um i make the point i think in in part two of the book uh that when you submit your manuscript to a journal this is basically um one of the very few steps uh in a long list of steps that then happens uh all of which are done by other people all of whom are unpaid and are doing this service um for the for the love of of science for the most part um and as their duty as as part of that scientific community and so when you submit your your manuscript you must make sure that you've done your due diligence ahead of time and that you're not wasting the time of many of these people and and many many steps thereafter yeah and that, and 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 precisely that's that's really just what I wanted to say because it's it's I mean the the issue that I'm interested in exploring a little bit as well in our interview because you you make the the point clear in the book as as to how the scientific project as we've been calling it and as you define it in the book need needs to progress um but what I'm interested in of course this being scholarly communication the podcast I'm interested in what is that going to do then to the communication so uh, just to take up the example that we had there with the authors this idea of understanding your research community and finding a match of scope 
for what you've produced and who's going to care about it, that element of communication is apparently not going to go away. I mean, writers, uh, authors are still going to have to be able to write that way so that people appreciate what they've done and see this actually matters to my own research. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I follow what your question is there. Daniel, can you, can you rephrase? Yeah, that's not really a question. It's really, I was just really <laughs> a sharing of thinking out need, loud. But Are we going to need um, people to still, in, in, in the new vision as I have it, your question would be, are we still going to need that um, communication with an editor that says, well, this is why you should look at my manuscript and this is why you should care? I, yeah, I guess that's I, pr- I quite practically yes. the point I'm driving at. Yeah, I think yes. And 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 earlier when you talked about what is an overlay journal, you you gave a, a very nice summary of um, why it is then incumbent when the editor likes something and says, "Okay, you know, now I want to publish this and I want to put it out there," and the editor is going to write uh, a piece that says, "Well, you know, this is why it's important." So it, it's it's there's almost a reciprocation there, of um, initially the authors are saying, well, you know, this is why you should care, and then the editor going through the peer review process, um, and it may be that at the end of that, and this has happened to me, the editor says, well, actually, you know, you thought I should care because of this, but actually, what I found in in reviewing your work is that it it actually has a, a much wider importance. Or it has a, a what I would say is the focus is, is actually somewhere else, and and this is an extremely helpful um, aspect of of the collegial way in which peer review happens. Other people can see more in your work than you did originally. They can see that it actually has more applications. They can point that out, and then when they're selling that on their overlay platform. They're, they're telling then other people, well, you know, this is why you should care. This is why that that information that's um, in this manuscript is important for you to read. So I see it as a reciprocal process, and I think all of it helps build, um, if you build on that initial submission that the authors make where they they say you know, to the editor, well, you collect articles like this, and I have an article that is similar, that should fit in your collection nicely. And then at the end of the process, the editor says, I agree, it does fit in my collection, and I'm going to put it there. Um, but I think you've missed that it's also important for other reasons, and this is what I'm going to highlight as when I put it on my uh, overlay server. Yeah, and, and another place where that sort of thing comes in, I mean, as as we've just explored the idea that in the cover letter and the editorial comment or summary in the review process itself, um, one of the – I found interesting a number of points just to pick up this idea that you're talking about the reciprocal work that's going on in the publication process, the collaborative nature of how it works best instead of competitive. So in reviewing, for instance, you say – the benefits are really endless for early career researchers to be reviewing and very many early career researchers, even PhDs, you make the point, have in your experience been very good reviewers. I mean, they're at the cusp of, of their particular area of knowledge at that moment. But the document that comes out, to my mind, that gives a sort of formal realization of this, because we've been talking in some abstracts of culture, but the formal realization of that is the reviewer's 
summary. And those first few lines in the review have a really important function that apparently is also not going to go away in a new model of the um, scientific project to decide whether or not to credit the reviewer's judgment, to decide whether or not the writing needs to be revised because the message was not understood by a competent reader. Um, this is another one of those documents which which um, is going to continue to have to be a focus of the sorts of skills that uh, scientists will need to uh, acquire in, in the course of their careers. Absolutely. We, we, we've just come through a fascinating period um, in, in terms of peer review where we have um, had a global health pandemic um, and the, the general public have become much more interested in research that's been done, especially um, towards uh, the, the, the COVID um, problem. And so one of the things that we've seen is that the public have been picking up things um, from preprint servers, uh, things that have not gone through peer review. They, have, they understand that, that there's this mythical beast of peer review, but, but there's some misunderstanding, I think fundamental misunderstanding of what that is and what it does. So a lot of people will, will say that, that peer review is this, this gold standard. Once it's been through peer review, that's it. Um, it's, it's solid. Well, that's, that's not really my perspective. I, I think the realistic um, reality of peer review is that it is a, a silver standard. So it's something that, that is, is just filtering. So as, I've, as we've discussed already, you know, I, I see it as this... Um, exercise in soft power where where peers are helping authors um, to produce the best uh, possible manuscript that there is. But this doesn't mean that it has reached um, uh, a gold standard. It just means that it can go out there for, for other people, for other scientists, but also for general members of the public to read and decide on their, their own grounds. Um, and in, in one of your first points, we, we talked about how all of these things should, should be open, and that includes this, this, uh, this peer review process. So peer review itself um, should be open, so it should be a document that uh, everyone is available to um, look at and to refer and see, well, what, what was the to and fro that went on between the authors and the, the peer reviewers? How did this manuscript change when it went through peer review? These are these are very fascinating documents, um, and I think they they are pivotal in our understanding of of, of that particular um, manuscript and the journey that it went on. So ultimately, we see the written document. We hopefully have the data as well, along with the the scripts that, that produce the results. Um, but in, in the peer review, we see how that, that uh, document um, was improved and that gives all the authors also insights to say, okay, well, I can see how the, the reviewers insisted they need to know about this and I can put that in my uh, manuscript and, and so I can already have that insight. Um, what what you're talking about here, and what we've said about editors and and um, the peer reviewers themselves, 
You give this also a visual format in uh, chapter 15. I'm looking at figure 15.1. I'm not going to be able to summarize this one as I did the others, which hopefully gave some people an idea of what uh, what was on the page because it's quite complex. Um, I suppose the important thing to say there is who's involved, the editors, the reviewers, and the authors, as we've just been exploring. And there's a bunch of arrows. I suppose that's a, the one thing to sort of draw out of, of that uh, um, work submission workflow um, visual. And the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is because there's just a lot of work going on by these people. <laughs> and um, one of the things that occurred to me while I was reading, I thought, well, why is it that at educational research institutes, we've got, um, you know, professors and other ranks in, in the system doing their research naturally and publishing it, um, also having teaching commitments. Why isn't it that they don't have, let's say, research communication commitments? At the moment, it would be something like publishing. But why isn't it that uh, you know editing, reviewing, or whatnot, whatever else might be involved in these arrows, is not a part of their contract so that this entire system can become formalized in that respect, structured? Uh, I, think, I think that... It- it it is for for some people in their jobs. It is a, it is a part of their job. So we would call this um, uh, the the society part of um, the the job that we do. So we have typically we have a teaching, research, and societal component. And so this is, is this speaks to not the the society at large, but the the community of of researchers it's hard to pin down um just as we were talking earlier about metrics in publishing so so research may then just be judged by metrics um in what you've managed to publish from your research but uh, and in the same way we wouldn't want to just pin down the number of reviews that you've managed to write because those reviews might not be very good um but yeah i i think i think for increasing um numbers of, of researchers, there is some expectation that you will give back to the community that, that you are a member of. Um, and that includes doing things like writing reviews or being an associate editor for a journal. Yeah, I see. Um, that's That giving back is, of course, one thing, but I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 sometimes I, I come up with naive thoughts here because I'm not a scientist myself, but it just seems that since peer review carries, I mean, you say it's the silver standard, it, it still is running as the motor of much as of what is acceptable research, though, for sure. The gold standard, I like what you have to say about that, is, is the test of time, the test of replicability, and the test of acceptance. Um, but peer review is making clearly a, an important contribution to that, as is, um, as we talked about earlier in the interview, the, the editor sitting at the center of this. And I would almost say that, from my perspective, again, from the outside, that it, it, these people don't even necessarily need to be giving back. It would almost be the same for me anyway to say, well, their next research project is their way of giving back. You know, I mean, that's part of their essential job, though. And that's why I don't see why the entire communication arm, as I'm sort of generally calling it here, primarily publishing, why the roles involved in that aren't also part of a scientist's normal 
uh, day job. I mean, this is so often the the term that's brought in, right? I mean, the people who are working as associate editor, their day job is, you know, X, Y, or Z, something else. Yeah, and I think, uh, as you mentioned before, um, the vast majority of, of, um, of faculty and and especially early career researchers, are, are more is being asked of them now than was ever asked of their of their predecessors. So they are having to tackle um, multiple jobs. In effect, um, they they are supposed to not only teach but publicize publicize what they do to the public. They are supposed to um, do all of these um, tasks for publishing and peer review. They're supposed to do their own research. They're supposed to raise their own funds. They're supposed to administer everything. Um, and so what they're asked to do is, is basically more than ever. And so what happens, um, and, and this is highlighted in the book, is that something's got to, something's got to slide, something's got to give. And so um, peer review does become shoddy um, and shortcuts are taken uh, by some editors because they can't cope with the, the volume of what's being asked of them. Um, and as I think, as I say, I, I think this, this becomes a self-regulating system once you take it, the, the financial equation out of it. So as soon as you, you remove the, the driving force that, that the, the publishers are sucking on the, the finances, then suddenly the, the motivations are purely in order to help um, the community and to get good work published. And then that, that's, that's, I see that as a, as a relief to this, to this system that currently is overworked and, and oversubscribed. One of the studies and another guest I've had, or guests that I've had on here were, um, is the science of science, uh, Wang and Barabashi um, being the authors of that. And they talked about how um, the data shows us that it's the early career researchers or the mid-career researchers that tend to be the most productive and also hit the sort of key studies of their careers. And then it's the late career researchers who the data tells us um, tend not to have that same peak that they had in their mid to early career. And one of the reasons is, and this is the reason I'm bringing up apparent, one of their interpretations anyway, is the load of duties that gets put onto senior researchers as they climb in the hierarchy of their institutions. They're um, doing more and more administration. They're doing more and more delegation. They're doing more and more coordination. And and of course, that, that just robs them of the time to be able to do the hands-on research that they out in the field or in the lab that they had been doing earlier on um yes uh but that doesn't mean that they that they can't play a part and they can't inspire the roles of of, of others and i i really i don't see um that there's a that there's a, a fundamental problem in that um their role changes from from doing into facilitating, and ultimately, what we want those people to do is be able to replace themselves. So ultimately, their role is to bring on uh, another cohort um, that can 
achieve even better things and go even further. So I, I don't see that there's a fundamental um, problem with, with people moving from a role that, that is doing and is, is very creative into a role that is more facilitating that in others. I think, I think that's, that's an equally important role. And I, I do think it's something that a lot of academics miss and perhaps they're missing it because um, the expectation of administrators above them or in order for them to get promotions themselves, they, they have to prove that it's them that's, that, that's doing the research. But I think showing that, that you have produced um, a cohort of um, researchers who are now established in their own right is, is a fundamentally very important part of being an academic. So if we, if, if we can't um, bring new academics into, into being and, and have them be creative um, and facilitate them in, the, in their space, then really we're, we're not, not deserving that role as a, as a senior academic. I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, what you're really talking about there is, is amongst other things, mentorship and the importance of that. And I think that's a, refresh, a refreshing perspective on it, a, a perspective that you return to also in the book here and there. You talk about how, you know, this this primacy, this this the, one of the functions of the journal being that you have the, the primacy of an idea. You know, you've shown priority of discovery and, and, and you, you sort of zoom out and tell us, yeah, that's all well and good, but really it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you, you make it very clear that, you know, these thoughts are products of their time. And even people ahead of their time afterwards, we can very often see how the thinking developed. I mean, it, it's just so nice and refreshing to hear this, this grounded view as to it's the community that's doing this. Science can't be done alone. So why are we measuring it and doing everything else in its administrative capacities on individuals? Yeah, and, and we are getting that more and more of that insight, aren't we? So we're, I think most, um, most kids at school now not only know the name of Charles Darwin, but they know the name of Alfred um, Wallace, who independently came up with um, very similar ideas uh, because they were they were I'd, even though Darwin was the first person to manage to put them down one of the reasons he put them down was because he saw that other people were coming up with the same ideas or very similar ideas and they were products of their time just as we learn now that that Watson and Crick although they were were the first people to write the paper and publish it that, that could show the structure of DNA. Actually, there were lots of other people behind that that, that did fundamental work and that should have shared in that accolade, um, but that didn't because of this, this idea of primacy. Well, those are the people who, who managed to publish it first. Well, yes, but not necessarily entirely legitimately. They did take work that was already, um, had already been done by others and didn't give credit for it. So again, you know, the, this idea that we're, we're rushing to be the name, well, I, I think that's, a, that's rather an immature um, view of, of the scientific project and that the, the scientists 
do need to be more humble in terms of, well, this wasn't just the product of, of one person. And, and I do see that that culture is changing. I do see that um, whereas we used to have uh, manuscripts, papers that were, were just authored by a single author that may have represented the whole um, lab of, of um, not only students, but postdocs and technicians and uh, plenty of other people who had input. Now we're seeing all of these other names coming onto manuscripts. Uh, and I think that recognition is very important and it's very good. Yeah, and uh, one of the one of the quotes, there's lots of great lines that you give us in the book that just sort of straight up tell us how things are. And, and one of the quotes that comes to my mind in this connection of the facilitator role and the importance of mentorship and the communal side of science is when you talk about uh, in, your, in connection with the feasible productivity uh, discussion, you talk about good study systems just keep giving. And the connection that you have there is, of course, that you know students are providing data uh, to PIs and PIs are publishing in the research group, of course, but that this makes it feasible that large numbers of, of uh, publications can be done in a short time. Um, but I, I see the wider significance of that good study systems just keep giving in the sense that, you know, I mean, part of the community is, as you said, sort of replacing yourself and providing the educational factor in, in, in science. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree. And, and, and then maybe in, in, in that connection to, to, to close out, um, I would like to give you, since so much of uh, the book is also calling out uh, particularly to the early career researchers, but any any researcher at all, to be thinking about the scientific project, to be reflecting for a moment on the next choice that they make. I mean, you make uh, very clear that every author has the power to decide where to submit, just as every reader has the power to decide what to cite, right? I mean, these things... Nobody's telling you to do that. Um, I would like to give you the opportunity here, closing us out to maybe if you had a message for any stakeholder from publishing research education anywhere that you felt, you know, captured what it is that you wanted to say or somebody who you'd address so that the next step in the scientific, the development of the scientific project could take place. What, What would that be that you would say to them? I think in terms of publishing, um, what, what we really need to know is, is what is a scientific journal for and what do we want it to be for. So we, so we know more or less what it, what it was for and where it came from, but what do we want that to be in the 21st century and how will it, fit, how will it meet rigor, independence, transparency and reproducibility? So we have a lot more potential now than we ever had before for for making everything available. Um, And this means that every single um, publication that's out there, so every piece of scientific work um, can be used not only in that one time, but can be used again and again and again. So how do we want that to be presented? I don't, personally, I don't think that we should lose that interpretative manuscript, that what we call as a a journal paper that really gives us the insight of of 
of what the people who did that research thought and did, because that that's like a historical document for the time. But what else can we get? What else can we get um, that will really make that work um, so much more valuable going on into the future? So we talked about a couple of things about making data available, about um, uh, making um, the script for the analysis available, but there's there's so much more to it because these days scientists are producing so much more um, digital content. Uh, so they're, they're scanning specimens, for example, in biology, and, and those specimens are becoming available to a much wider audience. They've been completely open. They're um, sequencing DNA, and, and those data sets are also um, open and available. So, so what do we want? What do we want those journals to do, and how do we want them to interact with this uh, bigger, uh, big data? Um, how do we want them to interact with that availability? I think the, these are, are challenges because um, there, there's a, there's a huge potential there, but we mustn't uh, get sidetracked by uh, the 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 figures, the citations and the, the, the other metrics, the impact factors, we mustn't get distracted by these things and, and what other um, third parties want uh, financially out of this bargain. We, we need to concentrate on that scientific method on, on, on what we as scientists want to get out of scholarly communication and, that, and that's pivotal. Because unless we're in control, and, and my fear is that right now we're not in control, so unless we regain control of this publishing process, then we, we can't really expect that the future will um, lay down the records that we need in order to build on them. Well, really, thank you very much for that, John. Uh, that is... Uh... That's a message that lots of people, I hope, uh, are listening to and, and, and thinking about. That, that is John Meesey and his book, How to Publish in Biological Sciences, A Guide for the Uninitiated, is out now with CRC Press and available and collaborative at Bookdown. Just visit the blog post for this episode and follow the link there. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to John. Goodbye. Goodbye, Daniel. Thanks so much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time, here on Scholarly Communication.